Jamie, can we get uh, Trumka dying up on the monitors? And then it's just like the crab rave dance, like dunk 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 dunk. Because yeah, it's like one of those things. I made a post about him dying, and like nobody even fucking liked it on Twitter. Not because I think there was any great outpouring of support for Richard Trumka, but just because I think unless you have very specific union brain, you probably don't even know who he is. Yeah, because, like, I mean, I don't want to be, like, real crass and, like, dance on the guy's grave or anything. He's certainly right. one of the less one, shitty. One of the guys. He's certainly one of, of the leader. Let's, yeah, but let's, let's also, give it up for the uh, Bill Clinton of the union movement who I mean, died yeah. recently. Yeah, because, like, <laughs> on the one hand, he did do some pretty cool, like, stuff relatively on foreign policy stuff like he did come out relatively early against the bolivia coup which was you know as i talked about on that episode pretty big policy shift from the afl's traditional reaction to coups in in latin america that was to actively be participating in them right right exactly (laughs) and i mean since the solidarity centers are still you know funded by the ned i have to imagine they do still you know get involved in that stuff at some level but on the other hand, he's also the guy who was like maybe the key person behind stopping the push to evict cop unions from the AFL. So like that sucks. So it's like I guess it's kind of like Richard Trumpka is a land of contrast. Right. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't know if he's worthy of crabs, but he's definitely not one to be mourned. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get well on Twitter. I didn't give him the crabs. I thought I'd be a little extra spicy on the podcast. On Twitter, I gave him the old "oh no" anyway response, yeah. which is a little more appropriate, maybe. Um, sounds right. Yeah, Richard Trumka, truly the um, Catholic moderates of the <laughs> AFL CIO. That's a little World War II joke for you. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I don't know. They, we've seen that recent like upsurge with the Teamsters. Maybe, uh, maybe now with a some some leadership shakeup in the AFL CIO, there will be you know some chance for some reform people in there to make a bit of a push. You can only hope, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I guess we have to just hope that Cooper Caraway becomes the new president of the AFL. You know, then uh, then we'll actually have a a real leftist in uh, in union leadership uh, up high again. I mean, like he does, he's the part of the AFL South Dakota um, state representative or guy or whatever, and he's pretty great. But nice. uh, yeah, the out of every the, the funny thing is, is that he's like the um, the select leftist union leader. Like whenever I've seen, like especially like Means Morning News or other sorts of like um kind of lefty media cover union stuff they're always like yeah cooper caraway and i'm like okay who else there's cooper caraway (laughs) Uh, and what's oh and then there's the there's the girl with the with the piercings and the tattoos um i don't remember her name the lady from ncis (laughs) (laughs) except for cool and not a cop okay okay yeah yeah sounds good (laughs) I mean, I've always thought the most, the worst thing about the lady from NCIS was that she was a cop, right? And then it had to be the yes. whole um, goth version of 1950s pinup aesthetics. I think that's pretty bad, too. So those yeah, are kind of competing. They're neck and neck. I mean, that's just aimed at, like, the audience of NCIS's weird fantasies. 
Because sure. that's, you know, like 50 to 65-year-old boomer dads. Yep. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. And they Which suck. is exactly... If you're listening to this podcast and you're, <laughs> and you're of that demographic, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this is exactly what our listeners tuned into here on, which is our that's analysis what, of NCIS. Yeah, that's our listenership. A lot of people don't know this, but actually, when we get done recording this podcast, we all sit down together and watch Bones, the greatest <laughs> television procedural of all time. This is just a gigantic poster of David Boreanaz behind uh, John right now. <laughs> that's right. That's my guy, Agent Seely Booth. I hope to be just like him someday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving away admit, I'm giving away I was, that I that I actually do watch Bones well, now that I mean, I'm letting like, you know. <laughs> I, I think I, I finished the I finished the series, but also I think I finished it when I was like twenty four. Right. So back when the De Chanel sisters were still pretty relevant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's those actually, episodes where bro, Zoe De Chanel shows up. And I was like, wait, who is that again? Oh, wait, <laughs> yeah. no, I do know who that is. <laughs> yeah, because like, you don't realize it. I didn't realize it watching that show like when I was younger that that's Zoe De Chanel's sister, fucking Emily De Chanel or whatever her fucking name is. And then they have this series of episodes where Zoe De Chanel like, is in the show and like trying to be an active part of what's going on in the show. And like, it just doesn't work very well. She's not really suited to that. <laughs> I don't know. The show is over, and that's good. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> but this show is just beginning. everybody to another episode of work stoppage this is a show about the television series bones and its relevance <laughs> to the union movement in the united states we are entirely yeah. listener supported so uh for those of you who support us on patreon thank you very much we're working on a really great series about the nature of the state from a variety of leftist perspectives that you can listen to if you subscribe on that website if you haven't gotten into the discord already you are missing the best part of the meme review what are you doing get it together my friend uh and if you could on your way leave us a five-star review on apple podcast we would really appreciate it but we are here. It's me, John, Dan, and Lena. Hi. And we are ready That's to right. talk to you about the UMWA rally for Warrior Met coal miners and the way that it oh, has drawn yeah. in people from unions across the country. Yeah, we kind of alluded to it in the uh, in the meme review of the last episode. Um, but they have been like ramping up their actions to show how powerful the union is. And, and honestly, these guys are pr- pretty awesome uh, when it comes to the actions that they've been doing. They actually showed up, uh, like we said in the meme review, that they showed up in New York City to um, protest in front of... Um, what is it the, is it black water black water black rock rock, rock. Yeah. i cannot i those two i get mixed up you know actually one secret thing to the listeners one time i made a joke and i realized that i said the wrong one and i actually cut the whole joke from the episode that was a mistake <laughs> i will never do that to you again they, well, mean, a lot of people just... <laughs> don't realize this but uh, black rock is actually vulnerable against black water right <laughs> which in turn loses to uh black ice uh <laughs> 
We're going to get out our sand, other sorts of building materials uh, and and structural Evil corporation (laughs) Pokemon element chart here. That's right. That's right. (laughs) The old black rock, black paper, black scissors. Uh. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think that the... The thing that is so interesting about them demonstrating in front of BlackRock is mm-hmm. that, like, because BlackRock, like, this is because BlackRock is the biggest, you know, investor in in Warrior Met, um, in like, you know, the parent coal company that runs the mine. Hence the demonstration in front of their offices. But it's like BlackRock has its tendrils in like all sorts Everything. of major problems going on, right? Because they manage one point five trillion dollars in assets like they're one of they're becoming one of the largest corporate landlords in the country you know as as we've seen this you know boom in evictions combined with a massive surge in people buying homes you also have them moving in and buying up entire neighborhoods to you know form rental monopolies right um so like obviously like i think you know it's good that the the umwa folks are are bringing light to their involvement here in this ongoing labor struggle that's now stretched into the fourth month of their strike. Um, but I also just thought it was an interesting like parallel. Like you look at like this coal company that's now lost millions of dollars from this strike, but with the, you know, monopoly financial capital control over so much of, you know, the economy in this country, you look at like the size of the assets a company like BlackRock has, and it just really shows like the importance of having, you know, strong unions like like these folks here in the, in the umwa yeah well um, and it shows right. a really heightened level of uh class consciousness from these workers that they're not just like okay we can protest outside warrior met but they're like why don't we go up to the people who are really funding this shit why don't we you know follow the money so to speak and uh mm-hmm. i think that's really fucking important and it lets people yeah. know like you you know a lot of these issues don't just come from like bad situations at one employer or bad situations in one workplace like they're systemic and they're like endemic to the uh insane capitalist class investor shareholder you know ceo kind of arrangement that uh so much of the country is is run based off of yeah the the private equity business model exactly Well, and uh, on that thought, I mean, like, there were a lot of um, other union workers who came out in solidarity with the uh, with the UMWA workers. Mm-hmm. There were some um, CWA communication workers from Atlanta, um, and like there were UAW members, other Teamsters and teachers, and uh, like people are showing up. Like that's that's one of the cool things about this is that like. I think that we're either remembering or or relearning the importance of the the fossil fuel workers struggle, absolutely, um, and and how and how strong that really is, and how, why we need to hold solidarity with those people. I, I'm really seeing maybe maybe there were more like solidarity pickets before, but I feel like I didn't see them uh, very often, and so well, it's I think really, the- really great to see. Yeah, stuff like Warrior Met and like the Bessemer Drive in Alabama, which we'll get to a little later in the episode, I think have really heightened people's sense of understanding that this is all one struggle, you know, like that there's not any like one discrete uh, workplace gain that's going to like smooth out the labor relations in the United States and that we are all essentially living under the big tent of finance capital. 
and that that's really like what we need to be uh, attacking at least with some of our energy if we're going to get this shit sorted out in a systematic way as opposed to just like piecemeal gains for workers in in different regions and that's why it's great to see like this um this whole tent full of longshoremen who showed up uh to this outside black rock wearing custom-made white t-shirts that said port workers in solidarity with mine workers i know we've already talked about uh, longshoremen being slightly more class conscious in general than a lot of uh, union memberships tend to be. But like this is exactly the kind of solidarity movement and the kind of um, display of, of class consciousness that really, I think, actually forces the ruling classes or the managers or the investors or the bosses or whatever to give in and to cave to worker demands as they rightfully should. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, imagine imagine the longshoremen go on strike like they did in solidarity with Palestine. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of I mean, like because they are on on picket with these with these workers, but not necessarily you know on strike. And and I mean, that's what that is is that's a threat. You know, if if mm-hmm. like if they don't shape up, they could be seeing a much larger strike on their hands. Y- yeah, and and like as you were saying, like not only did the this rally that they had after the 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 um. The demonstration in New York City, they, they had this big rally down, you know, in right by Warrior Met. Like, not only did they have pe- folks from all these disparate unions, they were also from all over the region. Like, they had people from Charleston, Jacksonville, Mobile, Alabama, from Georgia, Kentucky, South Carolina. They even have a story in here where of a 76-year-old retired former coal miner named Mouse who had taken the bus from where he lived in West Virginia – to New York City to go to the protests at BlackRock and then took another bus 18 hours down to the rally, which is in was in uh, Brookwood, Alabama, near the coal mine. And and Hamilton Nolan, who who wrote this story, who went to the, the rally to report on it for In These Times, had mentioned that he's, he was talking to this guy and asked, he's like, oh, so what, what made you, you know, want to spend all that travel time to do this. And his response was, it helps my union brothers like very fervently. Hell yeah. And and he, he really emphasized the, the level of support that folks were getting from, you know, retired former miners who were showing up in, in large numbers to, to show their support and, and actually be there physically on the picket lines. And one of the things that he, that, that Nolan reported on in this that I think was interesting to highlight and I think, you know, really goes to the importance of class struggle is that this was a, like a big crowd of well over a thousand people coming out to this. And he points out that this is, you know, a, a very diverse crowd along racial lines, along political affiliation lines. Cause he, he points out there's a lot of, you know, conservative Republicans, very Christian folks as part of this crowd but they all shared the same understanding that it's necessary to come together as a, as one working class right. and fight for this. And so, like, I really think that points to the because you'll see some people, I think, sometimes get sort of defeatist about the idea of, oh, well, you know, so much of the working class in the U.S. is so conservative. How are we ever going to, you know, be able to build a union movement? And. I think this really shows it's like people don't have to share every single one of your beliefs for you to be able to start having a conversation with them when your material interests are intertwined. And that's like the the power of class-based struggle in in these union movements is, is that it's an entryway into being able to then start to pull people, you know, in the right direction on every other struggle. 
Right. Because like that base relationship with the understanding that workers have to struggle together or they'll drown under, you know, the, the pressure from the incredible, you know, mismatch of power between the, the company and the individual. Right. And I think once when you see the understanding of that, that gives you an in to be able to really talk with people and, and start to get rid of some of the misconceptions that, that people will absorb from, you know, decades and decades and decades of right-wing bourgeois ideology that we get fed, you know, from the media and through schools and all the other ideological institutions. And so I thought that was a, a relatively, you know, inspiring piece to, to this story. Absolutely. I mean, well, it makes you think like, why was there a relatively uh, active and uh, fair, like relative to now powerful socialist and like communist movement in this country close to a century ago? Uh, And it's because at that time, what were the socialists and the communists doing? Well, they were organizing workers and they were making sure that they got more money in their pockets. Like you can be as like insane Marxist or anarchist or like completely theory brained or whatever as you want. But you're still going to like earn the admiration of a random conservative Trumper if you got him a better wage. <laughs> like, it's hard not to like somebody who puts more money in your pocket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, at work, we had an example of one of the new workers who has like a family history in like landlordism. And I was talking with them and trying to bring up some, uh, you know, uh, points about you know why people deserve dignity and housing and stuff like that and they came back to me afterwards because i mean it was it was it became slightly tense for a moment but then later right. they're just like you know i can actually see that you care about people and they're like like you know uh and and also that because i constantly at work talk to the the guests or or the other workers about like lefty stuff and or, or like the you know the the co-op and all that and right. and and it it becomes clear to people like it doesn't matter if they're conservative or not like a lot of people will see that those like material things and 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 realize you know the side that they should be on you know absolutely well speaking about picking a side to be on uh, the NLRB did something pretty interesting. Uh, in declaring that Amazon's interference in Bessemer made a fair election impossible. So as we talked about when we were covering the Bessemer um, Union Drive in more detail, uh, one of the biggest things that Amazon did was place a USPS mailbox conspicuously on the work campus with all kinds of surveillance and everything around it. And the NLRB... uh, has ruled that it was obvious that Amazon chose the placement of the mailbox and not USPS, and that that was enough to invalidate the results of the entire election, which is just kind of fucking badass, and something we gestured towards being a possibility when we talked about this the first time. Right, because specifically, they were put right in front of uh, cameras, which were monitored by management, and so what they could easily do is they could see, not maybe not necessarily what the votes were, but at least who was voting. Right. And we did see that there was a huge, like, 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 not, amount of people that didn't vote. And and how that could have at least been one thing, but then even to have that fear that I kind of stoked at the, during the episode, um, or maybe the episode after in the follow up, was that you know who's to even say that Amazon isn't able to go into that mailbox later and do mail tampering, right. do some sort of like you know identification of ballots. Um, I'm sure they could, and I'm sure clear. that they 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 probably like changed out the can like this doesn't 
hope this doesn't sound too conspiratorial, but like they probably put higher resolution cameras up too, so they could make out, you know, better detail of what's going on. And even if they didn't, the fact that the workers know where the cameras are and that they're casting their ballots right in front of the cameras had to have felt pressured and swayed by that. Like there's no, there's no register of analysis in which this doesn't Real, come out as like obvious tampering with the election on behalf yeah, of Amazon. Yeah, if you uh, listen to our Nature of the State episode, real uh, panopticon hours of, of <laughs> yeah. you know making sure that you comply with the way that you're expected to act because you know that you're being watched, and it doesn't matter if someone looked at the cameras or not. You know that there's the possibility that someone is watching you. Well, yeah, and so. your the, your fellow workers are going to tell you shit like, "Hey, you know, maybe you should do such and such this way." Like, I know the cameras are on you. That's the real, that's the like scary bit of the Panopticon is that there's not always a guard in the tower, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. But the right. the absence of any kind of uh, evidence if there's a guard in the tower or not. Makes lead the workers to police each other they police themselves yeah and uh that's what you really got to fight against uh if you're if you are all going to get together and tell each other how to do shit you should do it in solidarity with one another and order the boss around you know like there's a much better use of that uh of that energy but yeah so the um they found that Amazon's installation of a mailbox, quote, at a location that reasonably appeared to be within the viewing field of the employer's multiple security surveillance cameras so tainted the election that a second election is necessary. Uh, the NLRB, quote, safeguards the administration of elections and does not delegate any functions to the parties. Quote, the mere appearance that a party has control over the election destroys the laboratory conditions necessary to conduct an election, <laughs> which that's a badass quote right there because you really do need, like, laboratory conditions you need to be removing variables removing yeah you know temporarily removing the pressures of antagonism so that everybody can get together and think in a in a holistic way about everything that's going on and what they want their you know demands to be uh who they want their union representation to be stuff like that you you just can't do that with a manager breathing down your neck and prodding you with a clipboard at every fucking turn. And one thing that they didn't bring up at all was how Amazon quote, like colluded with the local government to do, to change the lights. Um, That's not even in here as something that was like some sort of violation of people's labor rights. I mean, yeah, the, and like the RWDSU, like, like we, as we mentioned in our, um, you know, debrief on, on the whole union thing at the time, they pointed the mailbox out very loudly, you know, at the time, like this is clearly fucking illegal. Right. Um, so I, I, I am a, you know, a little surprised to get this seemingly firm of a ruling, although we'll explain that this is a little, there's some more steps to be followed, but they did also mention, um, that the, this, NLRB official who was writing this this opinion stated that Amazon committed a quote inje- objectionable content by distributing anti-union materials in the presence of managers, um, saying quote the misconduct herein occurred on numerous occasions at untold number of meetings. Virtually all the bargaining unit employees were subjected to the misconduct, as these were mandatory employee meetings. Right, and and so I mean, honestly, you would think, or I would anyway, at least from you know doing this show <laughs> that if that's enough to to overturn an election and it absolutely should be every single election for the past 50 <laughs> years should be overturned if well, <laughs> yeah, something like that because <laughs> i think it this unfortunately i think is a little bit of a window into 
the different level of engagement you're going to get from the NLRB if you have a high profile union involved in this. Because like we talked about, you know, there are probably things the RWDSU could have done better as far as the Amazon drive. There have, you know, been cases made by other groups of Amazon workers that they want to develop their own grassroots organizing efforts on the ground. And, you know, there's pros and cons to all of that. But I think one of the things that, you know, comes out of this ruling is that like by making it so publicized and by being able to leverage the resources that a large union has, and obviously, you know, not every uh, industry necessarily has a big union. You got to start small somewhere. But like that, I think it definitely played a role in getting this ruling out, which is unfortunate because, and, and the reason I say that is because of this, this specifically, not just the thing about the mailbox, which is a little particular to this election, but the stuff about, you know, the mandatory, the captive audience meetings, that happens, like Lena was saying, that's, that happens in like every single union drive across the country. Yeah. Right. Like and 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 they mention in here that, you know, this ruling isn't final, so there's not definitely going to be a second election. Amazon can appeal. Uh they had a quote in here from uh a Un- University of North Carolina professor of labor, Jeff Hirsch, who said that the next step is for the hearing office's rec- recommendation to be reviewed to the head of the Atlanta region and that the director could order a new election, but Amazon's already said it will appeal. So this is, you know, it's going to go through a bunch of back and forth lawyering but mm-hmm. i think like as as you were saying john like the stuff that was in these opinions was i think pretty cut and dry <laughs> yep so I, I think that there is likely to be another election but as we did talk about in the in the the debrief like it's still going to be a really really challenging uh effort i just you know this does give us that glimmer of hope that they're going to be able to do that effort sooner rather than potentially you know like as we've seen at other companies where right when there have been failed union drives it may take four five six ten years for it to get another one off the ground after the Mm -hmm. demoralizing impact of this sort of thing but so hopefully this the second election does come around and and the the union is able to maximize their uh you know, agitation about the malfeasance yeah. committed by Amazon in this case to help, you know, re-energize the, the folks in right. Bessemer. And I, but, and I, and I think that like that is maybe the more realistic, uh, demand that we can have, though. I do think that, uh, historically the NLRB is not very good at handing down, um, you know, like yeah. what the, what should be done about this because clearly they handed in enough cards to get the election they handed in more than 50 percent of the employees i mean like in my opinion the union should just be certified automatically but right. just like in um in like the case where there was the nlrb that got into like the union vote that was happening before i got into like my union stuff that was like the previous sh- like shops in other areas is they were uh the company that i had been working for got charged with um bargaining in bad faith and so what what was the uh thing that the nlrb said they said well now you have to bargain in good faith and that was that was ba- <laughs> right. that was basically the the punishment that was handed down and sure it did lead to slightly like one one significant concession and but like for the most part like it didn't really change much at all and uh and it really just gave like it extended the the clock on how long everything was taking 
Right. Um, if if the NLRB would be more decisive in ruling in favor of workers in a very significant way, I think that we would actually see a, a much different atmosphere for labor overall. But with this, oh, they fucked over the election, so now you have to do another election. Let's right. hope that they don't fuck them over again. Like, yeah, right. I think that it's it's just naive. And I mean, uh, they, they they should just award the workers like a fucking. 10% bonus like whatever stats come out of this election you automatically get 10 more percentage points for having like you for Amazon having fucked with you in the past but there's not anything like that they're just like oh well I guess one of us cheated run it again like <laughs> yeah, no what are you talking about <laughs> re- reshuffle the deck we're gonna do the whole thing from yeah. scratch oh god <laughs> yeah no I mean you're, you're absolutely right Lena like obviously like a big part of the reason that you know we would really, you know, love to see and think that all major unions should be pushing for the passing of the PRO Act is because it has things like card check in it that would have, you know, in cases where you do have 50 plus one, one person, you know, able to to get those cards in, you would just be able to automatically get that that recognition. And I do think that even, even beyond, you know, a bonus to the percentage if you really wanted to make the NLRB actually have some teeth, it should just be, look, if you commit an obvious violation of these election protocols, we're just going to say that the, the workers won the election. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you want to learn about the, the pro act, I know that there is an old episode somewhere in our catalog that's specifically about that. I think it's even just called the pro act. So, so you can learn about that there. Um, but I guess in the meantime, we can move on to our next story, which is actually about another giant, like, like a huge employer in the United States, Walmart, but more specifically in how they're exploiting the working class that aren't necessarily working there, though they might be, uh, and how these banking organizations that are associated with uh, Walmart, which originally people were worried that they should that they shouldn't even exist, and they do currently exist, but how they've actually managed to stay afloat. As you might expect, if you've anybody's had a bank account before, how is it that banks make money? Well, maybe interest, usury, but but more so, it is exploiting the poorest people with overdraft fees That's and right. random charges and. The banks that are, or the 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 banks that's specifically associated with Walmart, has managed to stay afloat specifically by doing that. Yeah, like so. This is a, a story uh, from Truthout, and specifically by friend of the show Sam Knight. Um, and this is pointing to, as Lena was saying, these three specific banks that are all associated heavily with Walmart: First Convenience Bank, Academy Bank, and Wood Forest National Bank, who all made more than 100% of their profits from overdraft fees, which means that not only were they getting all of their profits from overdraft fees, but their other portions of their business were actually losing money. That's how lucrative the practice of instituting overdraft fees are. Like They, they pointed out that, that these three banks are the only three banks in the entire country who have so skewed a uh, basically a profit margin on these um, these overdraft fees, including in some of them who where the rest of their um, services are so unprofitable or so small a part of their business that the overdraft fees ended up covering those costs completely and actually being two hundred percent of their profits because as, as Lena was saying. 
by using these overdraft fees to basically bilk money out of the the poor folks that are shopping at Walmart that and and who often and folks who often may not have access to a savings account in any other way they're basically functioning not as banks in the traditional sense where you think of, you know, a building with a ton of money who lends out capital to people to go do loans or buy houses and, and stuff like that. And also, you know, and does commits a little, usury constantly. Yes, it mm-hmm. does some usury on the side with its, with its, uh, you know, all its various uh, lending practices. These basically just function as like cash clearing and payday lending places because mm-hmm. they would, they have an, in, an example in here where, their business model would be set up to have a $35 overdraft fee on a $25 purchase, which they, they, you know, would reason out to a, an APR of 25,000%. Jesus Christ. And like these, these companies have basically, you know, for the past couple of decades built their entire hyper profitable business margin off of doing this sort of stuff preying on people who are living you know paycheck to paycheck and so week to week may have to 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 get by on the bills because so many companies in this country don't pay a living wage may end up going over you know their their account balance week to week and so you know you'll see these companies oh it's only a 35 dollar fee but if that's happening over and over and over again at these huge interest rates, that really adds up for working people. Yeah, and and, e- and even they mentioned in 2010, the biggest of these, Wood Forest, paid 33 million dollars to settle uh, allegations from the office of the Comptroller of the Currency <laughs> that you know they've been engaging in deceptive practices and excessive overdraft fees. But of course, as with all corporate punishment in air quotes in this country. This wasn't a, you know, lawsuit that found criminal responsibility and forced a change in the in the company. They just they said, "Okay, you know, I guess maybe we should change some procedures." And the agency settled out of court without making the firm admit or deny the charges against it. And so they continue to operate on this same business model. Of right. course. And what that what that does is it actually leaves all of the people who were being exploited by these practices with nothing. Yep. They get right. nothing from the even if there is any reprimands for the for this company for uh, the mil the probably ten tens of thousands of uh, working class people that they've exploited, those people will get nothing. Yeah, well, and I mean, if it if it doesn't strike you as exploitation, I mean, just consider the fact that they're setting up in Walmart, right? Like they are uh, trying to target people who need you know big box store prices on everything who need discount items you know walmart is typically one of the cheapest places to shop and it's like you're in here offering up payday loans essentially to people who you know cannot really afford 35 dollar discrepancies in their budgeting you know i i often can't afford a 35 dollar discrepancy in my budgeting and uh and then you have the gall to turn around and be like um you know oh this is this is necessary like this is this is part right. of our business and this is normal bank i mean i guess part of the problem is that it really is normal banking right yeah. like i've said for many years like uh overdraft fees should simply be illegal you can't charge Absolutely. someone for not having money yeah 
Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that I'd like to point out is a little bit of a non sequitur is one of the reasons why Walmart's able to do a lot of this lower prices and things like that is because of its very expansive central planning system that is designed to connect with many different resource people and keep prices low and also do lots of production. It really makes you think. You know, like what if uh, we did that more on a state level instead of having some rich fascists uh, control the whole thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. And and well, and the other thing that this article gets into is that, like, you know, not only are there these banks operating off of, you know, Walmart's business model. Well, far be it for Walmart to leave that area of potential profits alone for these other people to pick up. They they applied to start their own bank in 2005, but oh, that, yeah, that's was what a lot I was of- talking about. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure to to get rid of that. And so instead, now what they've started to do with the, you know, mass adoption of smartphones, the rise of, you know, so-called fintech and, and the lack of regulation in that area, Walmart has since 2017 been offering its employees payday advances via the app that they use. Instead of, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, you can avoid overdraft fees by getting a payday advance loan with an interest rate between 6 and 36%. And so more than a credit card in, in yeah, many cases. Yeah, way more. And, and, and they mention in here that about 27% of the company's workforce, which because Walmart is, I think, still the largest single employer in the country. Probably. Uh, so, so that's almost 400,000 employees use that service in 2019. And these are folks who I, I know has been pointed out all over the place, but you know, bears repeating that in a lot of places are being paid less than subsistence wages. Like these are Walmart is the single largest employer of folks receiving benefits on, you know, food stamps and and Medicaid programs because they are paying sub poverty wages to these people and then coming back to steal more of the incredibly shit wages that they're giving to them by offering them incredibly, you know, Predatory. extractive payday advance loans. Mm-hmm. And all of this without having to deal with any of the normal regulation that a a bank would have to go under, which would, you know, still not really be that much. We've seen how predatory regular banks are too. But because, you know, the the state has no interest in holding back the innovation in the fintech industry, <laughs> the, the companies like Walmart can just skirt all the regulations and get around it. And, and there's a quote in here from uh, the head of the office of the Comptroller of the Currency, Michael Sue, who said, Excessive fees on overdrafts, predatory lending, high-cost debt traps, all these things should be prohibited. They don't have a place in the federal banking system. He was saying that, like, testifying before the Senate. But, like, well, okay, then why did in 2010, when you were fining these companies for doing that stuff, why didn't you actually stop them from doing it? And, you know, that's where we get into, you know, the class nature of the state. (laughs) Exactly. Because, unfortunately, like, you know, despite the quote, the most progressive president and, and cabinet in history, uh, I have not seen anyone there. Has, I haven't seen any big profile push from anybody in Congress to beyond this one quote from the, you know, the head of the office of the comptroller to actually make a change to, as you said, you know, outlaw overdraft fees, outlaw this sort of incredibly predatory lending that just drives down the the 
living standards of the already horrifically low wages we have in most of this country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, yeah. I, uh, yeah, and I, just, I mean, like, it, it, it's ju- it really highlights the idea that, like, there are so many people in this country who are like, oh, yeah, I hate the banks, or I hate Walmart, or I hate, you know, the police, or whatever. And it's like, these are all arms of the same fucking institution. Like, if mm-hmm. you really hate the banks, then you shouldn't be, like, a weird sovereign citizen libertarian nerd. You should just be a communist. It's much easier and much more yeah. effective at se- also, securing yeah, yourself financial, I- you know, Ideologically anything. sound, just like... <laughs> when you yeah, get, I, when you get there, it's just like, oh wait, it does make sense. I'm not mm-hmm. so confused by all this liberalism. Yeah, because you'll have these people out here talking about like corporate communism and stuff, and then being like, and that's why we need to have no regulation at all, so they can rip me off even harder. But then I won't hear about it on the news. Yeah, the greatest yeah. crime of the 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 Bolsheviks is that they regulated companies too much. Oh no, <laughs> what will we do? There are price controls now. Oh God, our society is crumbling. <laughs> What the fuck does that oh, even wait, mean? Oh, wait, no, we're actually lifting people out of poverty. That's yeah. not what we want to do, right? Well, I mean, like, if you're part of the ruling class, that's absolutely not what you want to do. Lifting people out of poverty is the last thing you want to do. You want to profit off their poverty. And speaking of the <laughs> ruling class profiting off of poverty, we that's have an article here about the Musk brothers, literally. The, who knew there were more than one of them? Uh, <laughs> getting together... Tragic, to really. uh, to to needle the workers for their uh, for their corporations even further than they already do as they grind out their labor so that they can put fucking billboards in space. One of which oh, one of these God. days I will yeah. shove up Elon's ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like so. I think most of our listeners are probably have because we've ta- I think we've talked about a couple of times on the show before. Tesla is notorious for being incredibly anti-union. Musk has himself been, uh, you know, slapped on the wrist a couple of times by the SEC for openly declaring his anti-union stances, which you're technically not supposed to do in the middle of a union drive. Uh, But, you know, no real punishment there. But uh, one of the things, just as a lead into this story that I wanted to mention, was there was a story from last week about a former uh, black employee who had worked at uh, at Tesla, who just recently had a ruling go in his favor to force the company to pay him $1 million after finding that the supervisors that he worked for at Tesla referred to him multiple times just openly using the N-word. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know that we've covered like plenty of, you know, abusive and awful bosses. And I'm sure there are horrifically racist bosses all over the country doing this shit. But like, well, I mean, like they're not only in here, I'm sure we export them to other countries too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) But yeah, they mentioned in here, there was an arbitrator, uh, arbitrator Elaine Rushing, who said in her ruling, there was evidence that two Tesla supervisors used racial slurs against this employee and that those instances caused him emotional and psychological harm, noting that, quote, case law is clear that one instance of the supervisor directing the N-word at a subordinate is sufficient to constitute severe harassment, end quote. And so this is the sort of thing that I'm like, yeah, I mean, obviously these people, you know, should have been fired for... <laughs> you know, racist harassment. This is the sort of thing that I think a $1 million fine is, you know, probably reasonably appropriate for not, you know, murdering six people like that story we covered in the last episode should probably be a little more 
than one million dollars. So, but I'm glad that there is has been some action taken against this behavior. It's just unfortunate that it had to get drug out in the the long process of arbitration instead right. of being handed down directly by a regulatory body. Oh yeah, yeah I mean those arbitration agreements are criminal. In fact, you'll even see that. In almost every single like tech sector or uh, in, in a lot of retail sectors, uh, I mean, actually, in almost any industry now, maybe besides like restaurant work, maybe uh, there are literal arbitration clauses, and I'm sh- you know I'm sure that someone's going to find an exception to that for me, but uh, but really, these arbitration agreements, what they do is they say you are not allowed to sue us. You will always have to go with the arbitrator we choose. We'll hire the arbitrator, and that's such a kindness to you, because then you don't have to pay the arbitrator or whatever bullshit they try and spew to you, when in reality, you should just be able to directly sue these people, do class action lawsuits, all that sorts of shit. But it is not possible as soon as you sign that arbitration agreement. Yeah, right. because that shit is legally binding for some reason. Yeah, and so... And why we were bringing up, you know, the Musk brothers is that not only is Tesla, you know, one of the most anti-union places to work in the country, but Elon's brother Kimball has also apparently fostered a very similar environment at the NGO Big Green, which he runs, which uh, I guess builds vegetable gardens in underfunded schools in places like Detroit, Memphis, Chicago, and other cities, which, you know, hey, that's good. I'm I'm all for vegetable gardens being built in in underfunded metro areas. These places are usually food deserts in a lot of cases because of the way that, you know, economic planning and the markets have decided that yeah, it's not worth it to provide affordable, you know, fresh food for people in these areas. And so oftentimes there isn't a lot of access to that. So again, like some of the other places that we've covered, this seems like a laudable goal. However, the working conditions for the folks there doesn't quite seem to line up with a lot of the, uh, you know, the professed ideology of, uh, on the surface level of this well, company. No, because it's all this kind of shit is always a distraction. You can't ever take like some corporation or some rich person's like philanthropic work or community organizing work at face value ever because they're not saying like, look, I planted corn in Harlem. They're saying like. Look, I exploited millions of workers, thousands or hundreds of thousands, however big their company is. And I'm and, giving uh, you a packet of seeds. Yeah, and I know that there were some major oversights and that someone was called the N-word routinely at work, but check it out. I planted corn in Harlem. Like, no, fuck <laughs> fuck that. Like, don't, yeah. don't accept their, like, weird little outreach shit. It's the exact same brain that uh, makes your bosses like walk all over you and not give you the shifts that you want and not give you time off for your friend's wedding or whatever. And then uh, they throw you a fucking pizza party to show how much they care about you. Like, <laughs> fuck the pizza party. You know, fuck the NGO. Fuck your philanthropic work. Like, you should be helping us, the employees. No, I, I, you should be an employee just like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should have yeah, your I- job, basically. Well, I, and I, I think this really speaks to something that's that's I think pretty endemic within the NGO you know complex because so much of what these organizations do they'll come and be like no we're a nonprofit we're doing these things that you know you probably think the government should be doing but we're going to tell you why it's better for private organizations to be doing it and but even in this case where you know on the surface level what they're doing is is really good but. The, based on some of the stuff filed with the NLRB recently, these unfair labor practices, 
you had these folks who loved the concept of, of the, the work that they were going to be doing, but just wanted to have, as we've reported before, a little more say in how things are done right. and got hit with some pretty strong backlash. They mentioned in the, in, in the filing, Big Green has advised employees seeking to join a union. They may not communicate with each other or the media regarding their terms and conditions of employment. That's not legal. Uh, and threatened employees with discipline up to and including termination in the event that they speak to each other or publicly re- or publicly regarding their workplace concerns. But those are all those are protected, concerted <laughs> worker activities, right? Like those are literally yeah. legally protected by the NLRA. <laughs> The, that's that's mm-hmm. correct. This is a seems like a pretty uh, kind of an open and shut case. But the, they they also give a couple of of concrete specific examples in here. Uh, one of which we we have highlighted because I think it's interesting because it's you know it's related, uh, related to what to, we do related to later to what we do. But the the, fir- the first example they have in here is that uh, you know earlier this year workers got together in secret and they they approached the Denver Newspaper Guild, which is a CWA affiliate, about organizing. And then specifically, uh, at the end of July, one of their employees, Odie Avery, who's a Detroit-based project manager for, for them, posted a photo of a cleanup day at a schoolyard garden that he'd helped build on his you know, public-facing Instagram account. And he mentioned the union, and, and the post was captioned, quote, Our communities are the main reasons my colleagues and I have formed Big Green Union, and we want to... And we continue asking Big Green and Kimball Musk to live up to their Big Green promise and voluntarily recognize our unit. Only through collective action can we fully support the communities we serve. And yeah. so, you know, that's that's not a particularly Very incendiary reasonable. message. It's there's nothing bashing the company. There's nothing, you know, e- even really, you know, pointing out difficult workplace conditions. It's really just saying, hey. We like the messaging of this company, and we think we can do it better if we have a union. Please yeah. recognize our union. Yeah, well, they're not even saying, like, we demand that, that Kimball Musk do this. They're saying we ask. Like, we're right. we're asking you nicely. Please recognize the union. Yeah, and my favorite part is, you know, the reasons why my colleagues and I have formed Big Green Union. That means that the union exists. Yeah, that's that correct. <laughs> Just want to point that out. And yep. And so, you know, despite the, I think, you know, extremely company-friendly language being used in there. The next day, Kimball Musk can suck a dick (laughs) and that motherfucker best recognize the union or we're going to recognize his face into the ground. (laughs) So the management of Big Green called this worker into a Zoom conference and forbade him to talk about the union during work and from going to any school events until the end of September, which, you know, when... The NGO you work for does all of its work at a school, basically is barring you from your workplace. And in addition to that, they also mention that another worker involved in the union drive was similarly disciplined after they went on Street Fight Radio to talk about their organizing efforts. Yeah, Jesus. that one was interesting to me as I was just thinking about the interviews that we've done and even like the other worker podcasts, like working people that do interviews with people all the time about like just worker activities and just being vaguely associated with the left. I mean, like uh, that, I mean, it's illegal to to retaliate against people for this. That doesn't mean that they won't do it. And so, right. you know, and, pretty worrisome. And these sorts... And these sorts of punishments, you know, on these workers who are just, again, not attacking the company, just trying to go through probably one of the most mild uh, outward-facing campaigns that I've seen, you know, language come out of, 
by cracking down hard on those folks, it really has a chilling effect on anybody else in the NGO, you know, complex trying to organize. And so obviously, you know, the, the folks here, the, the 11 employees in the proposed union, they've, they've all openly declared their support for the union now. And they're, they're trying to get a date set for the election. They filed an unfair labor practice, but like, I certainly hope we get a strong ruling from the NLRB on this because if the more they allow this sort of thing to happen with, you know, just a slap on the wrist of, Hey, that's not okay. Stop doing that. <laughs> like if, if that's, you're going to be their only reaction and they're not going to, you know, force the company to recognize the union or, or actually hit them with some real punishments. Like then even by going through the standard process, it, it can have a, like, like I was saying, like a chilling effect on the entire industry. And so I'm glad to see that these, these workers are still, you know, standing strong. They're sticking by their guns. They're still pushing for the union. They're still trying to get a date for the election. Uh, but I really hope that we see at least some kind of material response from the NLRB here, because this, this sort of crackdown is just as, as, as John and Lena both said, these are clear and obvious, you know, very simple violations of the NLRA. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, speaking of something that's simple and obvious, but uh, doesn't really get a whole lot of news coverage, we wanted to talk about... Isn't covered enough by the NLRA. Isn't covered at all by the NLRA or by the U.S. media, which is undocumented agricultural workers, some workers who are the backbone of the U.S. agricultural industry and are the reason that you have food on the table to eat every day. Uh, who are bearing unfairly the absolute brunt of the worst effects of climate change here in the United States. And if you live in the U.S., you should know how bad climate change has gotten. I moved back to Michigan after 10 years, and the summers are now hot. They are hot as shit. And the winters are very mild. It didn't used to be like this. It used to be ass deep in snow, like, in November. Yeah, yeah like, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's been reporting on some of the more obvious and unignorable portions of the recent climate change Maybe. effects we've been seeing. I think that well, one, well, I mean, I, I, the, I just want to bring up one thing on that note is like, there were a bunch of tornadoes in central Michigan that no one heard about. Right. Like that, that's a real thing. And people's houses were destroyed and there were a lot of people put in a, a terrible position. And I don't know if anybody's heard about the tornadoes in central Michigan that are incredibly like uncommon. Well, and it just used, used to, to be this year. Used to be very uncommon. It used to be we yeah. got like one tornado in this area, like every you know half a decade or whatever. And now we're getting like routine annual tornadoes, which is just great. But even just you know some of the the more the things like you know the gigantic fires that spread smoke clouds mm-hmm. that cover most of the country. Oh yeah, like th- those will get some coverage. But I, I mean, other than you know, the occasional story out of a good outlet, like in these times, which is where this is coming out of, uh, you really don't see much of discussions on how that affects the workers. Like, you know, we talked about this with the voodoo donuts issue and how that was affecting workers there. And we've talked about some of the stuff faced by agricultural workers, like the complete lack of COVID protections. When we were talking about the, you know, horrific working conditions that led to multiple deaths, uh, at, at a, what was it? A green bean packing facility, I think in, in Michigan. Um, but, one of the you know biggest effects of this directly, as as John was saying, is is on agricultural workers because if you're you know outside working on a farm, you can't have air conditioning like that. You are just subject to the as as both my co-hosts can can you know vouch for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are just subject to the conditions that are going out there, and 
and as John mentioned, like the, the backbone of our, our agricultural system in this country is, is completely reliant on, on undocumented workers in order to super exploit their labor. Because as this article mentions, between 50 and 75% of all farm workers in this country are undocumented and not unrelated 99% of farm workers in this country do not belong to a union, which to it's just to relate it back. Right. Absolutely. There is a reason that the original NLRA had a carve out for, you know, agricultural and domestic workers. And like that was justified by using, you know, a racist campaign to, to demonize the largely black and brown populations that worked on there. But the, the, you know, point of doing that, was to be so that these agricultural companies can chop those wages down to levels, you know, below what would be acceptable for anyone else so that they can reap profits on even, you know, pretty low prices. And they are now, in addition to the incredible burdens of, you know, regular just workplace conditions and and low pay faced by these workers, they're now facing the full weight of the accelerated climate change that we're seeing now. And, and in addition to that, as, as we talked about with the first, when we had Sam Knight on to talk about his reporting on the Supreme Court, now with the recent ruling against California's bill that required at least some small amount of access for union organizers to farm workers, with that being taken down, I, it removes one of the very few mechanisms in this country by which we could chip away at that, you know, 99% of these workers not belonging to a union. And that is a, you know, that is a form of class warfare by the Supreme Court is basically to try and prevent even the smallest amount of workers' gains for people in this industry because their entire business model is based on being able to pay these people essentially less than, you know, the amount they need to just be able to buy food. Right. In order to be able to throw stuff into a supermarket super cheaply and still make a big profit off it. And so now that you have, you know, temperatures going through the roof in the summer, you have these workers bearing all the brunt of that. They have like specifically their stories in here from one farm worker, Claudia Duran, uh, who's a 35 year old uh, mother working um, on a farm in uh, the Pacific Northwest, who specifically mentions that she has had to, and has, you know, other people that she w- works with have basically been forced to use the emergency room as the only form of medical care that they have access to, to deal with dehydration multiple times a year right? because of the increased temperatures that people are facing. Yeah. And it's on top of the labor uh, conditions that are there already. So she's saying they want us working until eight at night and Sundays too. All those hours you are under the sun because you don't even have a shade to eat your lunch. And then a 2008 Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report came out that from 1992 to 2006, 68 crop workers died from heat stroke, representing a rate nearly 20 times greater than for any other group of U.S. civilian workers. Most of the deaths were of adults aged 20 to 54 years. So these are not like, you know, elderly people who might be more susceptible to this either. These are like fit active working age folks who are consistently and routinely dying from heat exhaustion. And these are numbers from, you know, uh, a 14 year period that ends, you know, five years ago. So you can only imagine with the accelerating rate of global warming and the rising um, temperatures every year, the increasingly brutal summers in many parts of the country, that these numbers have already got to be much higher than what we're seeing in this article. 
Yeah, and and they point out in in the article that in addition to these numbers, you know, being from 15 years ago, and so we've obviously seen an acceleration in climate change since then. The, ta- the that number 68 workers, which again already an absolutely unacceptable, ridiculous rate that we've seen far higher than any other work. It and preventable, right? Absolutely, entirely preventable. None of, right. none of those deaths from from heat related exhaustion had to happen. There's, you know, there's no reason that these companies couldn't actually offer better working conditions for their folks. But in addition, the numbers are almost certainly, even for just that period, much, much higher because that excludes workers on small farms. And specifically, one of the things I thought was very interesting about this because of the parallels it draws is that they point out that a lot of heat-related deaths especially of undocumented workers get purposefully misreported. They mm-hmm. get they get reported as oh this person they just had a they weren't even doing anything they just had a heart attack which just must have been you know heart disease nothing to do with work completely unrelated not a workplace incident no reason to investigate us and that was just to me a striking parallel between we saw it with the, you know the kafala system slave labor camps that a lot of the construction work that's done in like the emirates over in the middle east especially in you know like two places like dubai and qatar like that's the exact same sort of thing happens there where they import migrant workers from poor countries and they you know put them into debt slavery and then when they work them in these incredibly hot environments far longer than you know people are supposed to work in that uh, sort of temperature and then when people inevitably die, they just record it as, oh, this is unrelated. Uh, somebody just had a random heart attack, had nothing to do with work. And so it becomes almost impossible to get real figures. So I would say undoubtedly, you know, in the that was a 14-year period with 68 recorded deaths. Undoubtedly, the number was much higher. Right. But in the, su- the succeeding 14-year period, I would have to guess the numbers have to be in the hundreds at this point. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go back and uh, remember which where that is, that was actually, uh, I think that I'm correct about this, this is episode 37, where we cover the Kafala system. Something that, like that. That sounds right. And I mean, yeah, that's back when we were doing the modern slavery episodes. So if you want to go back and look at it, look at those conditions and compare them to what we're talking about now, it's pretty recognizable. Yeah, I mean, we have a really great quote in here from... Um, Elizabeth Stratter, director of strategic campaigns of United Farm Workers, one of the largest unions for farm workers in the country, who says agricultural workers are human buffers protecting the middle class and white collar America from the effects of climate change. Rather than protect uh, just in the past four days alone, I have talked to farm workers in California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho and Arizona who are working either very early or nocturnal harvests this summer as a result of the heat. Uh, and the article continues, nocturnal harvests increase the number of children working in the fields because there is no child care available when shifts start at 2 o'clock in the morning. And so you are seeing an increase in 9, 10, and 11-year-olds working in these very dangerous workplaces, which is just like, there's literally fucking what is essentially like child labor and to some degree child slavery happening in the American agricultural sector, and we're all just supposed to like roll over and be like, well... I guess that's how. Yeah, I guess that's how the corn gets to my table. So this is like when you see people talking about bringing back the Roaring Twenties, and they're talking about you know like things like weird Gilded Age parties in the Charleston. It's like, well, no, they are bringing back stuff from the Twenties. It's just you know 
child labor and the Pinkertons. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And yeah, they mention in here that, you know, obviously working in these, you know, incredibly hot environments, faking constant dehydration, not only puts you at more risk for acute things like heat stroke, heat exhaustion, and, you know, potentially like heart attacks and death, but also can, even if you're able to force yourself, you know, through going to the emergency room or just barely being able to get by that long-term chronic dehydration can lead to long-term health problems for the rest of these people's lives. Like, especially, you know, like kidney issues, because you couldn't have people like suffering from real failure decades later, if you were exposed to dehydration this often Mm -hmm. and that despite all that despite the fact that you know we know that working in these heat conditions is not safe we have plenty of data to show that the government you know has all the information it needs about that and and that doesn't even count the fact that a lot of these people are being asked to work in in conditions where they're breathing in smoke now from the gigantic fires going on all over the coast and yet the the regulatory body that's supposed to be handling this, mm-hmm. OSHA, our favorite government agency, does not have the authority to suspend outside work under any of these heat conditions. It's completely outside the scope of their regulatory ability, which I think, you know, you can point to <laughs> yeah. that as that was written that way on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not that we're really... I mean, if you've been following the show, you'll know that we are... Um not very confident that OSHA is going to ever no. do anything to help people and uh and these the slap on the wrist that businesses do get don't even aren't even enough to deter them from committing the same actions again right um especially because when uh fines have been doled out by uh by OSHA then a lot of liberals will then be like oh well they fixed it uh without actually looking into it any further and that is a pretty consistent uh, way that things are done here in the United States. Yep. But uh, I guess on the on a different note of yeah, what to, is not consistently done in the yeah, United just to, States. Just to lighten up the scope of the episode a little bit today, uh, because we have to, just got done talking about child labor um, and heat stroke. Over 800 auto mechanics in Chicago have gone on strike. Very cool. 800 mechanics at over 50 dealerships in the Chicago area uh, are represented by the International Association of Machinists, Mechanics, Local 701, went on strike at the beginning of this month after voting overwhelmingly 597 to 6 to reject a contract offer from the dealerships. You got you to gotta imagine how yeah. shitty it must feel to be one of those six who voted for <laughs> right now. Yeah. And I think it's so funny because what the I think it was uh, people I don't remember who it was because I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing from the notes but there were uh, condemnations from some group towards the union and why they did not say they didn't tell the unionship to the union membership to vote for it and then so like the union like the up like the upper union was being told that they should have said that the workers should have taken this contract just like what the fuck do you expect like that is just absolutely ridiculous and if anything i don't really think that like the union as in like you know the 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 organizers and and the people who are getting paid to do the union work should ever really have a say in what the whether the contract is voted in or not um i i just don't think that that should ever be up to them it should always be rank and file and uh the idea that someone's saying that the union should is just silly 
Yeah, and and so they interviewed in, in these articles on on the strike. They interviewed a couple of the striking workers, you know, to to look at you know what specifically these mechanics are being faced with this with this contract and why they so overwhelmingly voted against it. And specific, and one of the folks they talked to in here was this auto tech Tom Sinecki, who has been working at this you know as a mechanic for forty one years, and and at the in response to the contract that the new car dealers committee which is basically the trade body for these car dealerships that organizes as you know they understand the need to organize collectively even though each one of those businesses already has you know an, an imbalance in power against an individual worker um but he points out that basically the way that their new contract structure is set up is that quote it's a license to steal because of Basically, they were demanding the ability to unilaterally lower wages and diminish working conditions. Specifically, they mention here from another uh, worker, uh, Carrie Routenkranz, a uh, another technician at, at Lexus of Naperville, saying, even though we're on the job 40 hours, they want the right to pay for only 36. <laughs> <laughs> because they're basically trying to write in to the contract the ability to reduce any journeyman's wages if quote he she or he does not generate a required income for the dealership oh boo hoo boo <laughs> fucking who ah that's bullshit like, like well, this is one of those things where you always hear the justification from capitalists for why the capitalists should be able to steal your surplus value that it's like well you know sure we're getting rich off of your labor but that's because we're taking all the risk. And every time that, you know, any one of these employers might actually, you know, lose money because of the the risk involved in, in market activities, they immediately come running to either, you know, a, a government body for a bailout if they're big enough, or if they're smaller, they try and take it out of the workers' hides. And, and basic, because again, there's this whole idea, they're like, we're handling the risks so we get to have some of the money. But they're socializing the risks onto the workers more than they're taking it themselves. They right. also mention additionally in here that like the this association of car dealers is refusing to pay into the health and welfare fund on an amount sufficient to cover their contributions that they would now in their new contract require workers to have to make up the difference if effectively jacking their healthcare price way up. Um, they have another quote in here from Sinecki saying, quote, our health and welfare is our pride and joy. And in referring to the fact that they struck in 1995 to make sure they could keep it. And he said, quote, I never regretted that. And so they've also pointed out that the local here that the car dealership association has refused to support training for technician, it's a refusal to improve retirement benefits. And that in addition, they're using that, that they, the union wants this organization to stop using language that quote undermines the bargaining process by allowing it to cherry pick provisions that it sees as favorable in other agreements. And so like, I don't know if it's, if it's a cliche at this point, but I do think it's interesting to see that, as fucking annoying as it is to deal with car dealers when you're trying to buy a car from them, that their dealership associations are just as scummy, if not worse, mm -hmm. when they're trying to screw over their workers where they're getting, you know, all their money off of in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, and the workers, like, like you mentioned, they said that they didn't regret, um, going on their strike previously to, to, to make gains for themselves. You have a quote here from Autotech Tom Sinecki, one of the workers. 
who says, sometimes it falls on us to say, we're not going to take it. I'm quite willing to sacrifice now in order to improve the working conditions for all techs. Yeah, um, that's a good, and good mentality. That's, that's the energy that you want. That's the, sol- that's the solidarity energy that actually does improve your working conditions. Yeah, that's the kind of long view that you got to have in these sorts of things because like we've we've seen time and time again, you know, the way that they'll try these companies will try and split using tiered contracts, you know, older workers who may have, you know, more seniority on the job from younger workers and just try and, you know, break up strikes and and work stoppages based on this sort of fracturing. So, it's always good to see folks who are, you know, on the front lines of this and really understand, you know, the necessity that it's like all the workers together have to be working for the same goals and that ju- that sort of division only helps the bosses. And and so I think both the fact that we saw a 597 to six vote to strike and then a lot of like really encouraging, very militant quotes from a lot of these, these workers on the line. Uh, I think that, you know, that, that definitely is a good sign for the longevity of this strike and for the ability of, of these these auto workers who i will say one of the articles also points out like there's no such thing as unskilled labor we we've Mm -hmm. obviously pointed that out but as they mentioned in here like these folks have really not been able to get much of a raise in their recent contracts despite the fact that cars have gotten more and more and more complicated so now these guys not only have to you know be able to you know change out your fucking catalytic converter but they also have to be able to do it troubleshooting on you know the the head unit in your car all of the different monitoring systems that are in these you know much more computerized cars so the amount that each one of these techs has to learn has kind of gone through the roof with the computerization of automobiles and so the continued refusal of organizations like this ncdc here in, in chicago to acknowledge the increased amount of training these folks have to go through all the new scope of their work and to then say, nah, we're going to stop contributing to your healthcare fund. We also want to be able to pay you 36 hours for 40 hours of work is just such a stark disconnect between the reality. And then, you know, what these folks are trying to pass off as, you know, easy labor, quote unquote. Right. Speaking of easy labor, (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, we're going to go to the meme, meme review. review. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the meme review, everybody. This is the chill after party of the of the Union Drive. This is when we're all getting getting beers and wings at B-dubs. Uh, and we're going to look at some memes that old man John uh, printed off the internet <laughs> and brought to the bar. Um, <laughs> First one's Sonic. Oh yeah, and I mean, who? What? What better anti-capitalist than than the hedgehog who can go fast, right? Like, <laughs> if there's a if there's <laughs> a more right. destabilizing force against capital, I don't know what it is. Um, the, the the material basis for capitalism is the steam engine. The material basis for communism will be the chili dog powered supersonic hedgehog. That's <laughs> absolutely one hundred percent right. And we got Sonic here. He's like cruising through what looks like a level one one from the OG Sonic Sonic game. Uh, and it says, and he's got his rocket shoes on. Got to get me a pair of those. And it says, "You got me fucked." If you think I'll recognize <laughs> capitalism as anything other than the destroyer of humanity and the Earth, and of course, Earth is just the first half of the Earthbound logo, which is like a lot of extra points for this meme. Just, just for yeah. that alone. I mean, I definitely appreciate in this one the use of like four different fonts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, the juxtaposition of this, you know, 
kind of dark but extremely accurate condemnation of capitalism with the <laughs> the very cheery grin on Sonic's face. Yeah. I mean, isn't it that something really- that... It really okay. reminds me of the other Sonic meme that we've done, which is the I'm fucking unemployed meme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, who, who's a better mascot than Sonic for, like, overcoming the, the depression and the anxiety of capitalist realism and just going out and, like, doing your shit and being a rad motherfucker anyway? Like, I can't think of anybody who plays by his own rules more than Sonic the Hedgehog, so. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Although he may have a competition, that's right, for being the fastest thing on earth. <laughs> because oh. all, as we know, Sonic is extremely fast. I mean, you know, if you've played Sonic Ball, the amount of fast per per second that he can get up to very high, very high. And his famous catchphrase, <laughs> "I am required to go quickly." Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's it. But so this next meme though is a chart of the fastest things on mm-hmm. earth. It doesn't have Sonic on it. Obviously, should be simple oversight. Well, Sonic is from a a, a parallel dimension to Earth. He was only here for a little while while he fought Dr. Eggman. This is all covered in the third season of Sonic X. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so this one we've got, you know, we've got like basically four options here. You've got the cheetah is the slowest thing. Then the airplane, a little faster. Then the speed of light with a, a little smiling <laughs> photon <laughs> shooting across the screen. And that's at about three quarters. It's got this little speed bar underneath mm-hmm. each one of them. But then the f- true fastest thing on earth, managers going to get pizza when they hear union That's talk. right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh, my gosh. I heard you guys had a problem. You were worried about those days you didn't get off. I know we don't pay you as much as we ought to, but check this out. Double pepperoni from the place right around the corner. <laughs> I know you're going to love it. (laughs) I even got two two liters of soda for all 20 of you. I mean, managers really do be showing up to the pizza parties they throw with like one two liter of Dr. Pepper, a single 10 inch pepperoni pizza and a small breadsticks. And they're like, all right, divvy this up between the dozen of you and then uh, get back to work. (laughs) Yeah. Also, uh, you got to clock out for this. Yeah. God. (laughs) Yeah. Um, this next one is one that I pulled in here because I think it's very funny because as someone who likes to, um, agitation comment on, uh, many things, I get lots of liberals and, 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 and boomers coming into my comments being like, but, but your cell phone, you're doing this from a cell phone. Gotcha. Um, this one in particular is, uh, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, backwards in that uh, it's basically just a, a, what do you call it? A clip art cell phone, mm-hmm. hand, uh, cell phone in a hand with a thinking emoji and a Chinese, uh, a China flag, and it says, "You say you hate communism via your cell phone that was made in communist China." Curious. Curious. And I really haven't gotten a chance. To, I haven't. Curious. Yeah, you're right. It, curious. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> this one. I. You're out here speaking badly about President Xi. On a Huawei phone. Oh, owned capitalists owned. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, so like, obviously, you know, it's always very funny to just turn around those right wing memes. But I, this one just reminded me of the the thing that happened. I, I think I saw it a couple of weeks ago, where there was a bunch of the you know conservative grifto sphere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the people that are Q adjacent. 
out there just, you know, trying to rile people up and get them to give them a bunch of money who were trying to sell this, quote, freedom phone that was like, this phone doesn't have any of the the woke corporation apps on it, and it's only, it's America first phone. I, I, I don't know, some, a bunch of stupid bullshit. And it turned out it's like, oh, this is just the cheapest, like, Xiaomi handset that they could possibly buy. Right. Loaded up with as much, like, shitty malware <laughs> as they could put on it. So, like, you get these capitalists who basically, you know, want to exploit you know jingoism and xenophobia and national chauvinism in the u.s as much as possible but they can't stop themselves from grifting as hard as possible which (laughs) requires them to buy the cheapest phones they can get which of course you can only get from china because they've actually developed the economies of scale to to make cheap phones exactly i i was i was watching an interview uh this was over a year ago but this was with um some kind of tech developer i don't know if he was an actual engineer or a project lead or whatever but um he was saying like yeah i'm a you know i'm a a a micro and and not nano but what was the other very tiny denomination he's like anyway i'm a specialist in 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 printed circuit boards like very very small ones and all and other uh in and um minimizing the size of electronic components and he said like if you got a convention of all of the people who work in my field together in the united states you might fill a small convention hall if you had that convention in china you would need the biggest convention hall in the biggest city that you could find because they they are working on this. They are spending resources on this that we just simply aren't in this country. And I mean, people get really fucking, uh, they get insecure about the fact that we're being rapidly, rapidly outpaced by China in almost every sector relevant to American life. To which I say... Uh, and they've if, recommitted to socialism in their most recent uh, announcements yeah. national or internationally, which uh, seems pretty cool. So, so to which I say that if you have a problem with China taking over all of these markets, maybe buy a, 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 a made-in-America product for your home consumption, such as Soldier Boy's game console, which is definitely <laughs> not a, a cheap Chinese game console that is multiple generations older than the current ones and has just been retrofitted with a bunch of <laughs> malware and uh, games nobody wants to play. <laughs> It's weird how these these griffs are like, you know, just repeating the same thing over and over yeah. again. But so our next meme on here is really, you know, taking an, a classic quote and, and a, a really good modern illustration of it, I think. <laughs> so this is, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are probably fans of Emma Goldman. There's a quote in here. Ask for work. If they don't give you work, ask for bread. If they do not give you work or bread, then take bread. That's right. And the caption of this is a raccoon in what looks like a subway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> opening up like their subway, little like, not a subway station a subway subway sandwich, sandwich shop right. yeah yeah basically just taking like trying to sneak open the cupboards to get in there at their you know uh what is it like yoga mat bread and their tuna that's definitely not tuna <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah. i love this because uh i've long thought that raccoons and also tanukis uh are just a great great mascot for uh any kind of insurrectionary politics right because like raccoon don't care he's got two opposable thumbs and an inclination to get in your dumpster and guess what (laughs) 
he motherfucking will. <laughs> yeah, you just have yep. like become ungovernable over like a bunch of tipped over trash cans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. And uh I guess <coughs> on that thought, our last meme is one of my favorites that I've seen. And this is so simple. This is the kind of thing that you see uh like as a little kitschy like piece of art inside of, you know, your local breakfast nook. And, and it's even got the cup of coffee that's steaming hot and the text on it, uh, first in red and then in, and then in black, the red text is, fast workers die young. And then the black text is, take a break whenever you need one. That's and that's what I'm telling right. you, listener. Fast workers die young. Take a break whenever you need one. Absolutely. Like, seriously, take a break. If the, if the NLRB actually wanted to represent workers' interests... This would be one of those things that has to be posted on, you know, the like available union information board at yeah, every place. Yeah, that would be so good. Yep. Oh my god. Well, gosh. it's just I, like I want to see that. Every time I've ever been at a job and there was an employee there who was like, "Well, I'm going to impress the boss. I came in early today and I'm staying late and I get more done in an hour than any of you schmucks." And I'm like, "Man, no nobody fucking cares about that." You are throwing out your back and your knees to prove a point to yourself that not a single other soul on this planet gives half a shit about. So why don't you why don't you put down the work implements and come over here and eat a tuna sandwich with the rest of us for 45 minutes like you a should real be tuna sandwich, not like from Subway. No, not a fucking That's Subway, right. a tuna sandwich that I brought from home. Thank you very much. That's right. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, that wraps it up for today, and mm-hmm. I always want to thank you for being a listener. Uh, we are entirely listener-supported, so if you want to help us out, head on over to patreon.com slash workstoppage, and you will get access to some of our old episodes that we still have uh, behind the Patreon wall, as well as The Nature of the State, Detroit I Do Mind Dying, the AFL-CIA, which if you haven't heard is still really important. I really hope that you get it, get that one uh, pretty soon. Uh, if you can't afford that, jump in the Discord and let me know. I'd be happy to give you access to a super secret channel that has all of the Patreon episodes in it. Uh, otherwise, you know, you can share the episodes with your friends, give us a five-star review on any platform, share it, you know, write bad reviews for bad podcasts and tell them to listen to us. Follow us on, uh, <laughs> work stoppage pod at, at work stoppage pod on Twitter. We, that's that's right. how you get a hold. That's how you hang out with Dan online now because we've forced him back onto Twitter with the work stoppage pod, uh, Twitter. <laughs> And, you know, John is Facebook villain, and you can listen to him on Beep Beep Lettuce. You can also listen to Dan on Red Game Table. Super awesome stuff. And, as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Fuck the Musk brothers. Fuck the Cuomo brothers. Fuck them. That's right. Solidarity.